This episode is brought to you by Shopify. Forget the frustration of picking commerce platforms when you switch your business to Shopify, the global commerce platform that supercharges your selling wherever you sell. With Shopify, you'll harness the same intuitive features, trusted apps, and powerful analytics used by the world's leading brands. Sign up today for your $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash tech, all lowercase. That's shopify.com slash tech. This episode is brought to you by Accenture. A better you starts with better hydration. Accenture is on a mission to inspire people to do what matters most. Their proprietary ionization process transforms water from any source into ionized alkaline water, providing water that's 99.9% pure with a pH of 9.5 or higher. Essentia Overachieving H2O, the number one ionized alkaline water. Shop now. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. When I said there's no plan B, that's because I don't think it ever makes sense to have mass emigration to Mars because uh, dealing with climate change on the Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars to make it habitable. You're listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store. Hello and welcome to the Science Focus podcast. I'm Jason Goodger, Commissioning Editor of BBC Focus magazine. People in the Middle Ages rarely thought about life beyond the next generation, yet they still built beautiful cathedrals that took hundreds of years to complete. In the 21st century, we know that life on Earth will continue long into the future. But what is this future we're building for generations ahead of us? Should we work on technologies that will one day create a permanent human base on Mars? Should we concentrate on climate change here on Earth? What does a future governed by artificial intelligence mean for our livelihoods? These are the big questions facing our species, and indeed, all other inhabitants of planet Earth which Astronomer Royal, Lord Martin Rees, begins to answer in his new book, On the Future, Prospects for Humanity. He talks to sciencefocus.com editor Alexander McNamara about taxing robots, terraforming Mars and tackling climate change. And remember, if you like what you hear, then please rate, review and share with anybody you think might enjoy our podcast. Also, if there's anybody you'd like us to speak to here or a topic you want us to cover... Then let us know on Twitter at, at @sciencefocus. Obviously, uh, a lot of what we see in the news can can be quite bleak. Should we be more positive for the prospects of humanity? 
the way I describe myself as being a technical optimist, but a political pessimist. As we all know, uh, everyday life today depends on technology, and that's been a huge boon, and it's going to develop far faster. But on the other hand, there's a big gap between the way the world is and the way it could be. And that's a symptom of political failure. So I think uh, we have to make sure that we can harness all these new developments in a beneficial way. Otherwise, we won't be able to adequately take advantage of the huge benefits in health, uh, agriculture and technology in other respects. So, so what are these developments that, are, that are, have the potential to really push us forward as a, you know, as a civilization? I think one of the most important, actually, is carbon-free energy. Uh, we all know that uh, greenhouse warming is a serious issue and has to be dealt with in the next uh, couple of decades. And one of the things I emphasize in the book is the need to accelerate research and development into all kinds of carbon-free energy so that we can bring down the cost more quickly. The problem is that, of course, countries like India, where people now depend on burning stoves of wood and dung, they need electricity, and they clearly ought to have electricity, and their temptation now would be to buy coal-fired power stations, which would be bad for the world and the climate. So the aim should be to bring down the cost of renewables so that India can leapfrog directly to them and other developing countries as well. So I would say that that's a kind of technology where an accelerated R&D program will be highly beneficial for the world and, of course, offer huge opportunities for advanced countries to uh, lead in technology. So is that something that countries like India and the developing nations should be taking on themselves or is there a role that you know the, more, the Western uh, technologically more developed countries, is there something that they should be doing? Well, I think it's in our interest to do it for our own sake. And of course, there will be an expanded market if we can do this ahead of what the Indians themselves do. I mean, clearly, they will be able to do something themselves. But I think the important point is this is a one win-win situation in the climate debate where it's good for the developed countries if they can pioneer the technologies and good for everyone if we can bring down their costs and apply them. And therefore, we won't need to uh, ban uh, carbon generating fuels because people will choose not to use them if in fact the others alternatives are cheaper so is that is that is there something there that's stopping us at the moment so you know we do have renewable energy that is it is becoming more common around the world is there a reason why it's not getting uh, as far as other nations well only two percent of publicly funded r&d is in the clean energy and why is that not closer to the amount spent on health or defense, for instance? I think we could, uh, with other nations, uh, accelerate this. And indeed, there was a resolution after the Paris conference in 2015 that nations should try and double their publicly funded R&D. And uh, some private investors like Bill Gates pledged several billion dollars more. So there is a push to enhance this R&D. And is that the sort of thing that's going to essentially solve the problems that we have or that is there uh, a lot more that we should be concerned about? Well, this would obviously allow us to have a uh, low carbon energy generation and that should uh, remove the more serious threats of climate change by the end of a century. So that's one obvious thing. But uh, of course, there are many other technologies which can be of benefit to the world, which are advancing fast. Uh, do you have uh, examples of them? 
Uh, well, I mean, obviously, everyone knows about uh, uh, IT technology and health, um, and uh, uh, genetics is leading to uh, improvements. But of course, there are downsides to all these technologies. We know that uh, IT has a downside of cyber attacks. And of course, there's a risk of a misuse of uh, genetics and uh, molecular biology in order to uh, generate um, uh, bioweapons and all that, and also do things which are ethically ambiguous. So uh, the, the, the way how I, I see that is the you've got the the, the carbon free energy that is a, is a long a long term goal, uh, as where other ones that you say like the the bioweapons they seem quite immediate. Does that make them more immediately pressing? And that's why research is going into that. Well, I think that's true that the climate issue is long term, and of course the reason it's hard to get climate issues up the agenda is that, of course, politicians and the public tend to focus on the local and the immediate rather than something which affects people in distant parts of the world 50 years from now. But, of course, we do need to think about uh, that long time scale because we need to pay an insurance premium now to avoid disasters in the second half of the century. So that's why climate is hard to deal with. But as you say, uh, the issues stemming from uh, advances in uh, genetics um, are short term, the benefits are uh, more immediate, and also the risks are immediate. And the risks, of course, stem from the fact that there's tremendous scope for error, and there's also scope for uh, a few individuals uh, to misuse these technologies. Is there something that we can do to sort of protect ourselves from from these, these people? Well, obviously, uh, there's a uh, tremendous amount of effort going into discussing regulation. There has been ever since the dawn of molecular biology when there was a famous conference in Asilomar in the 1970s uh, when people decided what sort of experiments could be done in the techniques of recombinant DNA, which were new at that time. And there have been similar discussions more recently with these more powerful techniques of inter-academy dialogues and all that sort of thing and regulations on ethical grounds. So we need all that. But the reason I'm a bit worried is that even if we have these regulations, enforcing them is very hard. Misuse of uh, biological techniques can be done by a small group of people or an individual in the kind of lab that exists in universities and many industries. And my concern is that uh, unlike at the time of the Asilomar conference in the 1970s, these are globally understood techniques. There are strong commercial pressures. And I worry that anything that can be done will be done somewhere by someone. And entirely effective regulation, I suspect, is as hopeless as global regulation of the drug laws or the tax laws. We know how hopeless that's been. Does that mean that there needs to be a, a sort of a global effort to make sure that these things don't happen? Well, there has to be, but I'm saying even if there is a global effort, it's not clear how effective it'll be. And that, I think, is one of the most intractable problems. And, of course, to reduce the risk, there's going to be a tension between uh, uh, privacy, security and um, liberty. It, it seems to me that um, in that sort of case that that it's just small entities that could put the entirety of our you know civilizations at risk. That's kind of that seems, as you say, quite quite pessimistic in a way. Well, this is a new feature of these powerful technologies. We've already seen that uh, a few people, or even one person, can produce a cyber attack, which can have uh, uh, cascading consequences even globally. And uh, similarly, bio could go out of control. So I think this is a new feature. And 
of the uh, uh, technologies that we have now. To, and uh, this is one of the main themes of my book, to ask how we can cope in a world where the technologies empower small groups and individuals in a way that wasn't possible before. I mean, I like to say that the global village will have its village idiots, but they will have a global range, which they didn't in the past. So is there, are there ways that we are able to deal, deal with this, as, as you mentioned? Well, I think we've got to do our best and make people aware of them. And the purpose of my book is to make people aware of these threats. But as I say, I think we'll have a bumpy ride through the century because of these uh, issues. And uh, as you said earlier, I think the uh, bio and cyber and AI issues are more near term than dealing with the climate. Although we do have to worry about uh, uh, climate and ecological tipping points linked to it. Mm-hmm. So uh, you you mentioned quite a few times in the book that there's essentially no plan B for the planet, um, which is one of the reasons why we have to sort of really focus on these problems head on at the moment. If we sort of step aside from that, are there any reasons why, you know, we're at the moment, there's quite a lot of us searching in the skies and looking up into space. Should we be putting so much of an effort on space or should we be concentrating on more of the the, the homegrown problems there? Well, I think space technology, of course, is another important technology alongside the ones we've discussed. And uh, as we know, we depend on it every day for communications, sat-nav, uh, uh, environmental monitoring, etc. And, of course, scientifically, uh, we depend on it because of the ability to observe the universe clearly above the atmosphere. And we've had probes to the other plans of the solar system. So all that is a, a huge benefit and this has been transformative in the last 40 years and is very cost effective. But I think perhaps you have at the back of your mind the question of manned space flights. And here I think as robots get better, then the practical case for sending people into space, the need for people in space uh, gets less and less. Uh, We can imagine robotic probes going to all the plans of our solar system. We can imagine robotic fabricators building huge lightweight structures in space or maybe on the moon and this doesn't need people at all so i think if people are going to go into space and indeed i hope they will uh, they will do this simply as an adventure uh, rather than for any practical goal and for that reason i personally think it should be left to the private sector the reason for that is that the private sector can take high risks of the kind that uh, NASA or ESA can't if it's sending civilians who are public employees into space. We know that NASA had two failures of the shuttle in 135 launches, and each was a big national trauma. On the other hand, uh, if uh, uh, people like Serrano Fines, who dragged a sledge across the Antarctic in winter, or people who uh, fall supersonically from higher to balloons and things like that, or mountaineers, they're prepared to take high risks. And they're the kind of people, I think, who will go into space as an adventure and who will perhaps settle on Mars later in this century. But they will be uh, a sort of independent group of pioneers. I think uh, uh, when I said there's no plan B, that's because I don't think it ever makes sense to have mass emigration to Mars because uh, uh, dealing with climate change on the Earth is a doddle compared to terraforming Mars to make it habitable. But on the other hand, I think the people who go to Mars will be important in the long run uh, for evolution and our species because they will, of course, be in a place to which they're badly adapted. We're adapted to the Earth. We're not adapted to the uh, gravity or the low 
density atmosphere of Mars. And so they will have every incentive to use all the techniques of genetic modification and cyborg techniques to adapt themselves and their progeny to this alien environment. Uh, we will regulate these things on Earth, I hope, on uh, prudential and ethical grounds, but they're away from the regulators. And so I think my scenario is that in the next century, there will be people on Mars and they will become what I call post-humans. They'll be different from human beings. And of course, whether they remain organic or whether the machines take over with the electronic brains, we don't know. Uh, but in the latter case, then of course, they wouldn't want to be on a planet at all. They wouldn't need an atmosphere. They might prefer zero G. And so if there's going to be an exploration beyond um, our solar system, it won't be humans doing it. It'll be these electronic descendants, perhaps not directly of us on Earth, but of the, uh, the crazy people away from regulations who are living on Mars. Mm -hmm. So essentially, the, the, the prospects for humanity in, in one sort of direction will be that it's not humanity as we know it. Well, that won't be humanity as we know it going into space. But uh, I hope that humanity as we know it will uh, uh, survive and flourish here on Earth. And of course, that is what can happen uh, if we use all these new technologies wisely. So how should we be with these new technologies? How should we prioritise in what we invest in and what we what we essentially see as our ultimate goal for them? Well, I think, first of all, um, we, humanity doesn't have to have an overall ultimate goal. We've got to let all ideas flourish and all stars of life flourish. But I think, obviously, uh, we know how transformative uh, um, AI and computers have been in the last 10 or 20 years. That's been the, the fastest transformation of any new technology. And <clears throat> that's got a long way to go. If uh, AI improves, then, of course, that's going to lead to a redeployment of the labor force. And I think the answer to that is to fund huge numbers of better paid, more dignified jobs as things like carers, teaching assistants, gardeners, the kind of jobs that can't be mechanized so easily. We ought to provide work of that kind by uh, taxing the uh, robots and those who own them. So I think we have to have a redeployment of effort and also uh, to ensure that we have a society where people can flourish and variety is allowed. And this will be beneficial um, if we make the optimum use of AI and also obviously health technologies. Incidentally, there's a problem with health uh, as I see it, which is this, that in the last hundred years, I think we can say that uh, health technology has been an, uh, an equalizing force because it's allowed poor countries to catch up in life expectancy, etc. So it's been a good force in that sense. And there's a risk now, if the politics goes wrong, that these new techniques of possible human enhancement, etc., um, could be uh, hijacked by an elite which can afford them and leave the rest behind. And the danger of that is it leads to a more fundamental kind of inequality than those as we have now. And so I think a political challenge will be to ensure that, that doesn't happen and that these powerful technologies aren't used to give a small a subset of fortunate people a fundamental edge over the rest of us. Do you think that there's a way how we'll be able to make sure that, uh, you know, avoid that situation? 
Well, it's a political political decision, isn't it? And I think uh, uh, we know already that there are some uh, uh, strands of politics that support greater equality and others that don't. And we've got to make sure that uh, there's a realization that there's an ethical imperative uh, to have greater equality. With that ethical imperative, is, are all of these things sort of subject to what you know we believe the people who are making these decisions, this, essentially the scientists developing things, they're the ones deciding what counts as uh, a positive outcome for for humans? Well, I would disagree with what you say. I mean, the scientists uh, are the people who uh, generate the background knowledge for the technology. But the scientists and technologists um, uh, should not be the people who have sole control over how these things are used because scientists have special expertise, but they have no greater wisdom outside that sphere of expertise. Um, and so any decision which affects the lifestyle of ordinary people has to be made by politicians and the public um, because it involves uh, ethics, economics, etc., as well as just technology. And I think this is uh, crucially important. But this does incidentally have a consequence for scientists. It has the consequence that scientists should be mindful of the impact of their work. They should alert the public to potential dangers and try and exploit potential benefits. But also, they should realize that science isn't just for scientists. And if the public are to make informed decisions on issues of health, uh, energy, and environment, etc., which all have a scientific components, then the public needs to have some feel for science. They can't all be expert scientists, but they need to know enough about science uh, not to be uh, um, bamboozled by uh, uh, slogans and gobbledygook. So it's very important that science should be uh, part of everyone's education. And um, uh, that's even more important in future when the consequences of the misuse of science can be more serious. But the crucial point is that scientists themselves have no special expertise in ethics or politics. Uh, that, that makes me, when you sort of mentioned the, the misuse of science, it makes me think about um, for the uh, the scientists that worked on the atomic bomb and how many of them afterwards came out and said this is not such a positive thing, essentially. Obviously, the science they did was incredible. Yes. Well, in fact, I, I take them as an ex example in my book because uh, I was fortunate to know some of these people in their later years, people like Hans Bethe and Joe Rothblatt. And it is true that many of them worked on the bomb. They thought it was the right thing at the time. But then they returned to civilian life, uh, universities perhaps, uh, and they nonetheless thought they had an obligation to try and help control the power that they had helped unleash. And uh, that, I think, is a model which we need not just in nuclear science now, but in biology and in cybertech, because all these involve expertise. And it's very important that uh, uh, those who are experts should engage with the public and the politicians to try and minimise the downsides. So if... Um if, for example, something happens, say we take AI, for example, and that, that goes to a point where the AI becomes self-aware in some way, not, you know, without going too far down the um, sci-fi route. Do we then have a responsibility to sort of step back and say, OK, we, we didn't quite get that right or it achieved one goal, but we need to change it now. We need to sort of move the goalposts. Well, I think uh, uh, we want to avoid any kind of runaway disaster of the kind which some science fiction scenarios pre predict and portray uh, if AI gets out of control. Um, and uh, uh, in that context, incidentally, it's often important to uh, ensure that innovations happen in a certain order. Uh, 
um, because you can have some techniques which actually help to control the AI and some which don't. And one of the issues uh, which I discuss in my book, and we have a group in Cambridge which is thinking about these things, is how you can ensure responsible innovation so that the uh, innovations uh, lead to the um, uh, um, the brakes being developed before the accelerator, as it were. Mm-hmm. And so, did you have a, a good example of how that might work? Well, I think it's true in all cases because we, we know what the dangers are and we want to ensure that there are uh, controls um, which can be uh, applied which would prevent any kind of runaway disaster. And this is true in uh, the case of AI. It's also true in biology because one of the things being talked about is so-called gene drive, where uh, you use CRISPR technology to uh, um, make a particular species sterile. This has been used in order to make a particular mosquito sterile that carries the Zika virus, which seems a good thing to do. But on the other hand, tampering with an ecology could lead to uh, unintentional downsides, like the uh, importation of certain species into Australia did, for instance. And so this is a kind of thing where we have to ensure the best science is deployed in order to explore these scenarios so that we can be alert to these possible dangers and thereby minimize them. As I said earlier, I don't think we can uh, uh, avoid having a fairly bumpy ride through this century, but we can ensure that we uh, minimize the risks by ensuring that there are enough experts who are thinking about what these uh, risks are, trying to minimize them, trying to explore the scenarios, and engaging with the public and with politicians. So do you think enough is being done now to make sure that the the next generation, the next century, will be you know, a flourishing period of human existence? Well, and, uh, clearly not enough is being done. Because, uh, there's a huge gap, as I said at the beginning, between the way the world could be and the way it is. And uh, uh, it is um, uh, appalling that we have the bottom billion on this planet living in huge poverty. And as I say in my book, um, the uh, wealth of the thousand richest people on the planet uh, could make a big difference to that billion people. And it's not happening. And this, incidentally, is why I'm ambivalent about uh, those who are optimists about progress. I mean, it's quite right that we have seen a great deal of progress. And uh, as a book by uh, uh, my friend Stephen Pinker, uh, who graphs all the benefits we've had in the last uh, 50 years in life expectancy and everything else. And he's quite right about that. But on the other hand, uh, we can't claim much ethical credit. It's quite right that our lives are far better than the lives of people in the Middle Ages. But on the other hand, in the Middle Ages, there wasn't very much that people could do to make things better. It was miserable, but they couldn't do much about it. Now, there's a, uh, we are much better off, but also there's a bigger gap between the way things are and the way they could be. So I'm very skeptical of people who say there's been any ethical progress in the last 500 years. I'm not sure there has. Mm-hmm. Um, so the, the final thing I want to ask is just with um, with everything that we can do to improve the prospects of a, a, a good future for humanity, are we missing something sort of very much, you know, you mentioned there about in the medieval, there wasn't much that they could do. That that life was pretty, pretty bad for them. Um, but are, are we moving away from just the natural, I don't want to say a natural order of things, but should we be focusing on humans or should we be focusing on the planet as a whole and all the life and diversity that's on it? Well, well I think uh, we, we should uh, focus on uh, uh, diversity and life. And in fact, I quote in my book, the great ecologist E.O. Wilson, 
who says that if human actions uh, destroy biodiversity and lead to mass extinctions, he says, it's a sin that future generations will least forgive us for. And I think uh, there's a feeling, I mean, uh, in fact, the Catholic Church has come out strongly on this in a way it didn't before, that uh, we do have a duty to the entire environment and it has value in its own right, quite apart from its benefit to human beings. And so I think this is an attitude which needs to be uh, more uh, widely uh, disseminated. And of course, I think the good news is that it is because people do care about climate. As I say, it's uh, hard to implement effective action because it seems rather remote from uh, immediate concerns, but they care about the uh, plastics in the oceans and things like that. And one point I would make, which I think is important, is that we need not only to ensure everyone has a basic understanding of the science um, of uh, um, technology and environment, but also uh, we need to ensure that they um, um, engage with the, the politicians because politicians um, respond to what's in their inbox and what's in the press. And the risk is that there's so many immediate issues that confront them that these long-term ones slip down the agenda. And the only way they won't do that is if we ha have um, people, real evangelists for uh, these long-term issues, who ensure that the public remains engaged and remains putting pressure on politicians to do something about them and have a longer-term vision. Because the main problem, uh, and it's a big paradox, which I address in my book, that uh, we've got bigger uh, horizons in space and time than ever before. We think in terms of billions of years uh, for the future of our planet. But on the other hand, in many contexts, we don't plan ahead more than 30 years um, in, uh, in terms of uh, uh, our investments. And that's a big contrast with the Middle Ages when they thought the world might only last another thousand years, but nonetheless, they built cathedrals that took a hundred years to be built. They thought longer term than us in that sense. And the reason for that was that they didn't expect short-term changes. They thought that the uh, next generation and generation after that would live the same kind of life as they did. They thought that uh, there was no big change. Whereas now, although we have these uh, huge expanses of space and time in our consciousness, we also know that the uh, lives of our children and grandchildren are going to be very different from ours um, because technological change is very rapid. And uh, if we think of the uh, impact of the uh, smartphone, which would have seen magic, say, 20 years ago, uh, we can't really imagine uh, what technologies may dominate our lives in 2050 even. So that's why it's hard to plan ahead. But the things we can do, uh, we can say if we go on as we are now, uh, there is a risk to the climate and biodiversity, um, and there's a risk of uh, triggering ecological tipping points if we put too much pressure on the environment. Because the thing about this present century is that because the world population is already 7.5 billion and is rising to 9 billion, um, and because we are all more profligate in our use of resources um, and energy, uh, we are putting pressure on the finite planet's resources. And this is the first century in the Earth's 45 million centuries of history when one species, namely ours, can determine the future. And I think we need to highlight that that is a special responsibility which we have in these generations. That was astronomer royal Lord Martin Rees. His new book, On the Future, is available now. Thanks for listening to the Science Focus podcast.
the November issue of BBC Focus magazine, is on sale now. In it, we find out how cloning Neanderthal brains could unlock the secrets of our own intelligence, look at election hacking, and learn how to speak canine. There is, of course, a lot more for the curious mind inside. Thank you for listening to the Science Focus podcast from the BBC Focus magazine team. We're the UK's best-selling science and technology monthly, available in print and in several digital formats throughout the world. Find out more at sciencefocus.com or look out for us in your app store.